his face, to veil his face, we can rest in his unchanging grace. What we have been seeing constantly on display in this gospel is the confidence that we have when darkness seems to hide his face. When, when it seems like God has no purpose in what he's doing. When it seems like he's forgotten us. When it seems like he's no longer there. When it seems like everything's out of his control, that's when he's most in control. Um, that's when, in those moments, when we cling to the cornerstone where his grace, his glory is being put on display. We've been looking at that in so many different ways. Every single Sunday as we've been going through uh, John chapter 18, we've been seeing God's glory on display even when it looks like this is the moment where he is least glorious. He is on display in his arrest. He is in full control. He's the one who goes to meet the um, arresting officers. He's the one who asks questions. He's the one who says, you have no permission to touch my disciples. He's in full control. When he's on trial, he's the one asking the questions. So who's really on trial? It's, it's the other people who are on trial before Jesus. We want to see the glory of our Savior again this morning, and we will. We'll see it so clearly in the way that he answers Pontius Pilate. Um, our Savior's majesty and glory on full display. John chapter 18, verse 28 is where we are going to begin our time this morning. But just background to get us to where we are yet again. We are walking with Jesus on the road to the crucifixion. We're walking with him down the road. He has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane um, in the very early hours of Friday morning. He's betrayed by Judas. He's arrested by Roman officers and Jewish officers and he's taken to three Jewish trials. John gives us the first of those three. And that, the first one's before Annas, the ex-high priest. And Annas is really buying time. He's a placeholder. He's trying to get a confession from Jesus, but Jesus is going to make no such confession. He's asking, are these uh, legal proceedings? And his suffering begins as the guard strikes him. You don't speak to a high priest this way. And he strikes him in the face. Then they take him to Caiaphas. This is the second Jewish trial. And the second and third Jewish trials we looked at yes, uh, last Sunday. And when we looked at these, we saw very clearly that Jesus is in full control. Even before Caiaphas. Who's asking the questions here? Caiaphas, you don't get to ask me questions the way you want to ask them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you questions that will get um, a, a confession the way that I want to say it. I'm going to tell you who I am. I'm not just Christ. I am Christ and the Son of God. You don't take me on your terms, Caiaphas. So the second Jewish trial before Caiaphas ends with Caiaphas saying, we've obtained testimony. He claims to be the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's blasphemous. Let's kill him. The last trial is before the Sanhedrin. It's a very quick trial. And we looked at that in depth last uh, Sunday in the Gospel of Luke. So we have three Jewish trials. But the problem at the last Jewish trial is they have to take Jesus to Rome, as it were. They have to take him to Pilate because the Jews were not allowed to execute. So we have a confession. He's guilty of blasphemy, but that's not going to get him killed before Rome. Rome's, they don't care if this man claims to be God. Uh, he's not God. He's a lunatic. We don't care. But if he claims to be king, now we have to deal with him. John's going to give us the first and last Roman trials. So we have three Jewish trials, three Roman trials. The three Jewish trials, Annas, Caiaphas, Sanhedrin. And then the three Roman trials, Pilate, Herod, and Pilate. And John gives us the first and the last of those Roman trials, just two before Pilate. We'll see a little bit of that middle before Herod, but it's a very quick trial. And it's really an, an attempt on Pilate's case to free Jesus. And it's not going to work. But through all of this, we will see the contrast of glory on display in the midst of moments where it seems the darkest, most difficult moments. And this is exactly where we live. We live our lives in the midst of dark, deeply despairing, depressing, sorrowing. God, are you there? Do you see? Do you care? And we are going to hear an emphatic yes this morning as we see Jesus on trial before Pilate. Verse 28, let's read these together. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin into the praetorium 
And it was early, and they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered, and they said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves. Judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. To fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative? Or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. It's not from this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born. For this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Father, these words of Holy Scripture that you wrote so long ago through the Spirit Oh, how maligned they are by the world. They are called completely irrelevant, outdated, antiquated. They are old and useless. But even what Jesus says here this morning, everyone who hears my voice, they hear the truth because... Jesus, you came to testify to the truth. So we know that though these words deal with a historical event and they deal with an old thing that happened, they are completely relevant for us this morning. And they will always be relevant. They are timeless truths. So I pray that we would do the work this morning of finding the timeless truth buried in these words, that we would see the narrative in its context, that we would identify what the Holy Spirit desires for us to see this morning, and that we would be changed. It's very easy for us to come into a local church assembly and to say, I have an agenda, I have something I want to learn about, and God, you need to answer me on my terms. And as we saw last week, we don't get to take you on our terms. So we come this morning and we bow the knee to your word and we say, God, whatever you have to say to us this morning, speak louder than every other voice, my, my own voice included. And speak in such a way from your word that would change us from the inside out. We are excited. We are expectant. We can't wait to see our Savior on display. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. We can really divide this passage up into three main sections. First is the accusation. Secondly, the interrogation. And third, the verdict. So very clearly, we have an accusation that's given against Jesus. We have an interrogation by Pilate, and then we have a verdict declared by Pilate. So let's start with the accusation in verses 28 through 32. The accusation, verses 28 through 32. Then they, that's the Jewish leaders, led Jesus from Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin into the Praetorium, that's the Roman Judgment Hall, and it was early. Daylight has just split the horizon. We're just starting to see a glimpse of some form of daylight. 
We know that Jesus is going to be condemned to die at 6 in the morning, and he will actually be nailed to a cross at 9 in the morning. So we have to get to a place where Pilate condemns him to die at 6 a.m. So that's why we said somewhere around maybe 4, 4.30, the rooster's already crowed. We're at a place where the sun is just starting to come up because the Sanhedrin had to wait until this is technically day. There's daylight. Now it's a legal uh, proceeding. And so they take him early in the morning to see Pilate. But they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. Unbelievable religious hypocrisy. There, there is no law in God's word that says going into a Gentile place was going to defile them. Um, this was a man-made tradition, and usually our man-made laws are, uh, to use Paul Tripp's analogy, the, the kingdom of self laws that we make for ourselves. Those are usually the ones that get us in trouble with being offended by other people. Don't offend my uh, man-made tradition, my man-made law. Uh, they got it from the law of God's word that says you shouldn't come into contact with a dead body. And if you ever touched a dead body, you were defiled for seven days. You were unclean for seven days. So they took that and they added laws to that law to say, okay, we know the Gentiles don't have this law. Um, maybe they don't care as much as we do about touching dead bodies. So we're not even going to step foot in their house, in their location. There was even a, a tradition that the, the Jews believed that the Gentiles, if, if they didn't want a, a baby, they would just set aside the baby, let the baby die, and house that child, uh, the child's body, in their home. And so they didn't want to enter into a Gentile location at all because of that. They don't want to come into contact with a dead body. But the reality is they would have actually done far more to defile the Gentile courtroom than the Gentile courtroom ever would have defiled them. John Calvin said, These hypocrites, though they are so full of malice, ambition, fraud, cruelty, and greed, that they almost infect heaven and earth with their abominable smell, are only afraid of external pollution. So they think, I don't want to be polluted here. So they stay out. They bring Jesus before Pilate. They stay out with a, an amount of incredible religious hypocrisy. They're going to murder Jesus, but they don't want to be unclean before they eat the Passover. So, Pilate goes out. Verse 29, Pilate went out to them. Pilate, this man is an amazing study. Um, we could spend our entirety uh, the entirety of our time looking at Pilate. This man is an amazing man. There's uh, so much history, but let me just set him up with a couple statements. Um, he's originally from Spain. Uh, he became the governor in Israel only when he became a part of the Roman legion and married the granddaughter of Caesar Augustus. So he married into this position, and he held the position for 10 years. And he struggled every year of those 10 years. He did not like the Jewish people, and the Jewish people did not like him. And he wanted to lord his authority over the Jewish people. And so he would do things to absolutely tick off the Jewish people. That was his goal. I want to make sure that I do things that make them unhappy. So there were three main things historically that he did. He took a Roman bust of Caesar and he put it in the temple. As you would enter into the temple, he put a Roman bust of Caesar and said, Look, this is our king. This is our God. Where's your God? Oh, this is his house. Sorry, this is our God. Um, Jewish people were very, very angry with that. He also built an aqueduct. It's still standing today in Jerusalem. Um, you can go see the aqueduct that he built, but he built it using temple treasury money. He stole money from the temple treasury to buy a, a water aqueduct. He also made shields to honor the emperor Tiberius. And with these shields, he put imprints of Tiberius saying that this is Rome's God and this is the God over all of Roman territory, which Israel is a part of Roman territory. And he hung those shields on the Temple Mount walls. So anybody walking by the Temple Mount, think of the Psalms of Ascent that we were looking at last week. As you're walking up to worship in the temple, you see shields, huge shields with the image of Caesar, which... The Bible expressly forbids, do not make a, an image of anything uh, living uh, on the earth, in the air, in the sea. So the Jews did not like that, but he would parade it around. He just wanted to parade around his authority. And every time he did those things, the Jews would write back to Caesar and say, uh, your, your boy Pilate's not doing too well. We don't like this guy. Caesar only cared about two things. 
um, be our slaves, be, our, be under our leadership, be under our control, but pay us taxes, Israel, just pay us taxes, and just be at peace. Don't fight against us. So the Roman officer's job, the procurator's job, was to keep the peace and have the people pay the taxes. And when Pilate is unable to keep the peace, then he would be unable to keep his job. Add to that that historically Tiberius at this moment, he's a crazy man. He is Caesar, and he's suspicious of people conspiring against him to kill him, to take over, and be Caesar. One of the uh, right-hand men to Caesar Tiberius is a man by the name of Sejanus, who is best friends to Pilate. So Pilate's best friend, Sejanus, is a uh, conspirator to kill Caesar. So Caesar Tiberius has um, Sejanus and his entire family executed, and um, their house is burned, and their livestock are destroyed. And he says, I'm going after any one of his family, relatives, or friends who might have been conspiring with him against me. So Pilate's halfway around the world, so to speak, and he doesn't want word to get back over to Caesar Tiberius that, oh, Pilate was really good friends of Sejanus, and Pilate just wants to keep his job. He's been struggling constantly to make sure that the peace is kept, to make sure no word gets back to Rome. And now he's in a very tough spot because he desperately wants to preserve his own job and his own life. But here's this man, Jesus, taken before him. He knows that he's innocent. Five times, Pilate's going to say, you're innocent. I find no guilt in this man. But he wants to keep his job more than he wants to do what's right. He's going to kill Jesus to keep his job. The irony is, as we know, Sin never delivers what it promises. Never delivers what it promises. One of the things when we study narrative, narrative is not as easily applicable because it's a story, it's a historical account, so we're reading a historical account. What are we supposed to do with this uh, for application? How do we apply this to our life? So we have to do a little bit more work to figure out the implications of the text. It's not as easy as a straightforward command, don't do this or start doing this. But in narrative, we look for implication. And one of the implications that we find in this historical narrative is that sin never delivers what it promises. Pilate is going to kill an innocent man because he wants to keep his job. And guess when he loses his job? Not even two years later, he's going to lose his job and he's going to lose his life. Sin never satisfies. It never delivers what it's promising. So whatever sin you might be pursuing, whatever area of sin you're pursuing to be satisfied by, let Pilate tell you from the grave, as it were, through this text, it never delivers what it's promising. It never delivers. Ultimately, Pilate is going to listen to the crowd over his conscience. He's going to be swayed by popular opinion, and he's going to kill Jesus because of peer pressure. He's going to kill Jesus because he's afraid of what people think of him, and he doesn't want people to have a negative thought about who he is and take that before Rome. So, Pilate goes out in a very tough spot, and he says, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answer, verse 30, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. These high priests, these, uh, the chief priests, the Jewish leaders are getting really good at not answering questions. The question is asked of them, and they don't answer. One of the reasons why they don't answer, here's the accusation we bring, is they really have none. They have an accusation that they hate him because he's blaspheming, but they know that's not going to get him killed. Pilate would say, I don't care if he's a blasphemer. He's a crazy man. Who cares? So they know, okay, we don't really have an accusation that's going to stick, that's going to get him killed. So they just answer, well, of course we have an accusation. If we, if we brought him to you, we have one, don't we? They don't answer the question. One of the other reasons why they're not answering the question is they're asking Pilate, as it were, play the game with us. You know that we wanted 600 soldiers from your command to come out and to arrest him. So we've already been talking, Pilate. You know we don't like this guy. We want him dead. So we're bringing him before you so that you would accuse him, condemn him to die, and kill him. Just play the game. Why do you need an accusation? And here's where Pilate says, I'm going to be fair, and I'm going to do everything I can to make your life miserable. Jews, you don't own me. I own you, and I'm going to prove it to you. That's what he's doing here. If you don't have an accusation, I'm not going to condemn this man. I'm not playing your game. Who's in control here, the religious leaders or Pilate? Pilate says here, nope, they don't use me. I'm using them. They're my pawns. 
So really what we have here is religious hypocrisy and political pride fighting. And that's a terrible mess. That's a formula for disaster. So Pilate says, okay, you don't have an uh, accusation. Verse 31, so take him yourselves. Judge him according to your own laws. What is Pilate saying here? Pilate's saying he's not worthy of death because by your own laws you can't put a man to death. So you go ahead and try this man, accuse him however you want according to your own laws, but you can't put him to death by your own laws. So what he's saying is let this man go free. Take him and judge him. And the Jews know this. They say, verse, middle of verse 31, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. We can't kill him. What accusation do you have against this man? Well, well of course we have one. Well, if you're not going to tell me, then just judge him. You, you know this man is not guilty, of worthy, uh, guilty in a way that's worthy of death. Take him and judge him by your own laws. Well, we can't kill him, Pilate. We want to kill him, and our laws don't allow us to kill him. And they say this, verse 32, to fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Why didn't they take him and just kill him the way that they had killed other people, just a mob stoning him to death? The reason why is if they had done that, Jesus would not have been the Messiah. If Jesus had died by stoning, he is not the Messiah. He prophesied in John chapter 12, verse 32, that he would be lifted up in his death. When I am lifted up, why is lifting up so necessary? The lifting up is a speaking of crucifixion. When I am crucified, and Jesus says it three times in the Gospel of John, John chapter 3, John chapter 8, John chapter 12, and now here in John 18, it's referenced. Why is crucifixion so necessary? Why does Jesus have to die by crucifixion? Four reasons. Crucifixion is cruel, it's lingering, it's public, and it's verifiable. Crucifixion is cruel, it's lingering, it's public, and it's verifiable. Think about the exact opposite of that for stoning. If somebody is stoned to death, if they had just taken Jesus as a mob in the middle of the night and stoned him, it would not be public because it's a very private event in the middle of the night. It would not be lingering. There would just be a mound of stones there, and it wouldn't be verifiable. You can think of a couple different people in the Bible where um, Paul in Acts chapter 16 is stoned to death in Lystra, but he gets up and he walks away. It had to be verifiable, and crucifixion is the most verifiable death that you can die. The Roman centurion who would preside over the crucifixion of a criminal was charged with the task of making sure that the criminal was not just dead, but good and dead. They have to be totally dead. So much so that there was a rule, Josephus tells us about this rule, that if somebody was taken off of the cross and there was any last vestige of, of oxygen or hope of life in their body, there's, um, Josephus tells us of one prisoner who was taken off of the cross and when they laid him down, um, a, a little air bubble kind of escaped from his lungs through his mouth and he just kind of went, and if that happens, if there's any aspect of life left in the body, the Roman centurion was charged to take all of those soldiers who were overseeing the crucifixion and put them on crosses. This is a verifiable death. The reason why Jesus had to be crucified is because there's no way that he didn't truly die. And if there's no way that he didn't truly die, if he for sure died, if he's good and dead, then when he is raised from the dead and we see him alive, then his resurrection is just as verifiable. That's why Romans 1 says he's declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection. Declared, it's the Greek word for horizon. Um, just as clearly as you can see, and everybody can see the sun coming up, everybody knows that Jesus is the Son of God because of the declaration through the resurrection. He is genuinely alive, and that's amazing because he genuinely died. There's no way that you can second guess. If somebody's on the cross, they will die. So here, even in the midst of a mob wanting Jesus dead, Jesus orchestrates the way that he's going to die. You don't, you don't take my life from me. I lay it down. I give it to you, and I give it to you on my terms, and I give it to you my way. He's predetermined everything that's going to happen to him. He knows it. Therefore, another implication that we see, not only is sin never going to deliver what it promises, but also nothing is ever random. God doesn't do random. And so when the mob is saying, we, we hate this man, we want him dead, 
And Pilate says, take him by your own law. And they say, we can't do that. You need to kill him. I think Jesus, as he entrusts himself to the Father, is saying, Father, this is exactly the plan. This is the plan. There's nothing random about what's happening. And there's nothing random about what's happening in your world. Everything that goes on is designed by God for your good and his glory if you are a believer. It may seem random. It may seem like, oh, that just happened out of the blue. What a coincidence. But we know there's no coincidences in God's mind. There's no random acts in God's mind. So, we see the accusation. The accusation is he's worthy of death. Though there wasn't a specified accusation because they don't have one. If they say, we think he should die because he blasphemed, Pilate would say, we don't care. They want to take him before Rome and say, he declares himself to be king. That's going to be the accusation. And we see that secondly in the interrogation. Number two, the interrogation, verses 33 to 38. Pilate will enter again into the praetorium. And he summoned Jesus and he said to him, so this is an amazing moment because we don't have anybody in this room other than Pilate and Jesus. Maybe a guard or two. But this is from the Holy Spirit directly through the pen of John because John wasn't there for this. And Pilate asks a question. This is the beginning of the interrogation. Are you the king of the Jews? Are you? Literally in the original language in Greek, it says, you? Emphasis, you? The king of the Jews? Pilate's saying, no way. I've seen people who claim to be king over Rome. I've seen Jews who claim to be king over Rome, and you don't look like one. You? Really? This is a horribly dangerous and ambiguous question. Are you the king of the Jews? You? Really, Jesus? You're the king of the Jews? The reason why this is a dangerous question is there's two ways you can take this question. You could either say that Pilate's asking, are you a seditionist? Jesus, are you trying to cause a revolution? Or Pilate could be asking, Jesus, are you the Messiah, the promised one, the king of the Jews who was sent by God, who was prophesied to come? Which one is it? It's ambiguous, and it's dangerous. And that's why Jesus is not going to just bend over here and say, whatever you want, let's get the, the show going, I, let's get to the cross. He's going to say, I will not die on your terms. And so he's going to define, what are you asking, Pilate? Are you asking, am I a seditionist? Because I'm not going to die as a seditionist. I am innocent, and I need to make sure that my innocence is proclaimed. So I'm not going to die as a seditionist. I would gladly die as the king of the Jews, the Messiah. So which is it? That's why Jesus answers, verse 34. Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Are you asking because you want to know, or are you coming to me with a question from somebody else? And if the answer is yes, you're coming with a question from somebody else, then Jesus knows exactly what question Pilate's asking. Because if you're getting a question from the Jewish leaders, the Jewish leaders are saying he claims to be king over Rome and he's going to cause a revolt. So Pilate, you're asking, am I a seditionist? Which I'm not. I'm not a seditionist. But if you're asking on your own, if you're saying, who are you? Are you really Messiah? Are you God come in the flesh? Are you prophet, the prophesied chosen one? I'll answer that a different way. So he asks, who's asking here, Pilate? Who's asking? Pilate answers, Verse 35, I'm not a Jew. I'm not a Jew. Your own nation and your chief priest delivered you to me with an accusation. What did you do? So now Jesus knows, oh, okay, you're taking their question. And their question is, or their accusation is, you're a seditionist. So Pilate's asking, Jesus, are you causing a revolution here? Do you want to overthrow Rome? Do you want me dead? Do you want to kill me and take over as king? And that's why Jesus is going to answer, verse 36, no, my kingdom's not of this world. If I was a seditionist, things would be much different than they are right now. My kingdom's not of this world. If it were, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom's not of this world. It's not of this realm. It's not in this location. This is just simply a, a legal answer by Jesus to say, I'm not a seditionist. I'm not causing a revolution here. I don't want to revolt against Rome. That's not where my kingdom is. This isn't about the location of the kingdom in as much as it's about the origination of the kingdom. Where is this kingdom from? 
It's from heaven. It's not authored here. It's not authored by humans getting together, causing a revolt, and establishing a kingdom. It's authored in a different place. It's absolutely breaking into the world, but it's breaking into, into this world because it was authored in a different world. My kingdom doesn't come from this world, Jesus is saying, but it's most definitely for this world. It's not from this world, but it's for this world. Jesus is simply giving a, a legal response. Many of our all-millennial friends love Jesus, absolutely saved. Um, I've heard it said that if an, if an all-millennial, one who believes that the kingdom is now and spiritual only and not don't believe in a, a thousand-year literal reign of Jesus on the earth, uh, like Revelation 20 describes, um, if they have a Bible and they drop the Bible, it's going to flop open to this passage. This is, the, this is the passage to go to. My kingdom is not of this world. It's not a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual, supernatural kingdom. But I don't think that Jesus, on trial before Pilate, would be trying to redefine the theology of the kingdom that's been established in the entirety of the Old Testament, that there's a literal kingdom coming for Israel, and they're going to be able to rule and reign with Christ, and their, their Messiah in this literal, physical kingdom. I think this is very simply just an answer. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, that's too ambiguous of a question. I can't answer that. You need to define what you're asking. And yet again, we see glory on display. Because who's really on trial here? Pilate is standing before Jesus, accusing him and interrogating him. But Jesus is the one interrogating Pilate. Graciously so. And we'll see that again next week in chapter 19. Pilate says, are you a king? Jesus says, dangerous question. You need to define for me what you're asking. Am I a seditionist? No. Am I Messiah? Yes. So what are you asking? And Pilate says, I'm asking the question that they're asking. They're saying you're a seditionist. Are you a seditionist? And he says, no, if I were, this would be totally different. This would look totally different. Pilate, you know that. My kingdom is not of this world. Pilate attaches to that, though, and he says, verse 37, oh, so you are a king. Now, this is the other question. Okay, you're not a seditionist, but now are you the Messiah? You claim to be Messiah? And to this, Jesus says, absolutely. You've said it yourself. You say correctly. I am king. So I'm not a seditionist, but I am king. I'm not trying to overthrow Rome, but I am king over Rome. For this I've been born. For this I've come into the world to testify to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. My kingdom is preoccupied with truth. I am a king over the kingdom of truth. Pilate answers, what is truth? What is truth? When Jesus says, I have come to testify to the truth, definite article. There's not many truths. There's one truth. And it's found in the person and work of Jesus. Remember he said in chapter 16, verse 4, I am the way, the truth. I am the only truth. You cannot get to the Father except through me. There may have been a time where we wouldn't really need to stress that as a point. But in our day and age, we need to stress that very explicitly. There is one truth. There is truth. And there's one truth. It used to be a, a modernist culture. Uh, in modernism, there is truth, but you can't really fully know it. We live in a, a postmodern age where there is no truth. There's no absolute truth. It's just relativism. Your truth is true for you. My truth is true for me. It's just all relative. Truth is relative. But relativism contradicts itself. If you say there is no absolute truth that everyone should believe, then you contradict yourself because you make a statement that you want people to believe. There's no absolute truth. You make a statement you want people to believe, but the statement that you make is that there's no statement everyone should believe. So here's my statement I want everybody to believe, and the statement is there's no truth everyone should believe. You've just contradicted yourself. So relativism doesn't work. That's why Jesus says, oh, there's definitely truth. There's truth. And everyone who's in my kingdom hears my voice, hears the truth, loves the truth. We've found the truth. We're not looking for truth anymore. We're not on a search, Indiana Jones and the lost truth. We have the truth. And if you have the truth, the truth will set you free. 
Pilate's response is, okay, what is truth? What is truth? What? What do you even mean? It's a very interesting question, and I just, I would love to hear the tone of it. We'll, we'll hear it in heaven when we replay the DVD of what's happening here, but I would love to hear the tone. Because on the one hand, this is a great question. This is a, Jesus, help me understand truth. And if that's the case, if, it's this, if this is asked in a nice tone, in a tone that would say, I want to know. I've been searching all my life for truth, and you're telling me the end of that search is here right now? I want to know. If that's the case, then I think we, we've come to the place in this interrogation where finally a good question is asked, and then Pilate says, but we don't have time for that. I don't know how many conversations have you had with somebody where you're patiently waiting for a good question to be asked, and they say, yeah, how am I supposed to be saved? Oh, I'm sorry, I have to go. Oh, that was the question I wanted to get. I spent my entire uh, afternoon waiting for that, and now you have to leave. So it could be that. It could be that. But I actually think it's less that and more, more of the question that you ask when truth is the last thing that you want to hear. Like, Jesus, you're telling me that you know what truth is? Really? What's truth to you? Because how do you define truth? Because your definition of truth maybe isn't my definition of truth, and therefore we really don't even have much to discuss. So I'm not really believing your definition of truth. He's an arm's length away from truth incarnate, and he asks, yeah, but what really is truth? Is there such a thing as truth? Can you really tell me you know what truth is? Pilate's a postmodernist. Pilate says, yeah, truth is relative, and, and we don't really know, and you can't tell me you have truth. This is why the postmodern culture is a culture of despair. It's a culture of despair, because here's a man who could absolutely bow the knee to truth, and he fights against it and says, well, we don't really know. We can't really know. We can never really know, and if we can never really know, then we're constantly on a quest. We're constantly searching. And this isn't an intellectual issue. This is a question of authority. Pilate knows that. This is a question of authority. Will you submit yourself to the truth? And then you'll learn about it intellectually. But will you submit yourself to the truth? Truth is about a person. It's the perfect revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, everybody on this side of truth, everybody on the side of truth listens. They hear his voice. They listen to him. So the interrogation goes very well on Jesus' behalf. Pilate has been tried. Pilate has been found wanting. Pilate ended up being interrogated. And yet Pilate doesn't walk away angry. Pilate walks away saying, this man is innocent. There is no guilt in this man. Even though Jesus took full control of this interrogation and is asking Pilate the questions. Excuse me, Pilate, can I take over right now? I'm the one asking the questions. Pilate does not say, excuse me, I have the, the right to kill you right now and I'm going to do it because I hate you. Nobody talks to me that way. Instead, he says, you know what truth is? You think you know what truth is? And he walks away. And he's going to give the verdict. This is number three. He gives the verdict, middle of verse 38. When he said this, he went out again to the Jews and he said to them, I find no guilt in this man. There's no guilt in him. No guilt in him. This is the verdict. Jesus is on trial, and as he's on trial before Pilate, Pilate hears the accusation, of which there really is none. He's a seditionist. Pilate goes, you? You're a seditionist? I don't buy that. And Jesus confirms that. Nope, not a seditionist. I'm the Messiah. I'm God come in the flesh. Pilate says, really? You really know what truth is? I've been searching my whole life, and I don't think that you know it any more than I do. But I know this truth. You are innocent. And so he goes out, and he says to the crowd, there's no guilt in him. There's no guilt. But you have a custom. This is actually a custom that Rome had instated to try and 
satiate the crowds to try and say, hey, you like this idea of Passover, you celebrate this thing called Passover where somebody's let go, where you guys exited out of Egypt, where you were released and freed. And so let's kind of play along with that. We want you to know that um, you should be our happy citizens. You should love us. Just pay your taxes and don't fight against us. And um, th this will be a great relationship. So let's just kind of do something. Let's just have a fun little uh, custom that we'll make for you that every uh, Passover will release a prisoner. There'll be just a, a fun little trade. So Pilate says, I know a way to release Jesus. This is ingenious. We, we, we know the Barabbas story, right? But this is ingenious. Pilate wants to release Jesus. So he is going to set a trap to trap the religious leaders and say, I own you, got you, and you have to do things my way. He already said, this man's innocent. He's actually said it twice now. This man's innocent. And the people say, we don't care. We think he should die. So Pilate says, I've got one. I've got one. John tells us that Barabbas is a robber, and he was. But he wouldn't be worthy of death if he was just a robber. The other Gospels tell us that he was a traitor, he was a murderer, he was an insurrectionist. We also have testimony from extra-biblical sources that tell us what he was involved in. He was involved in murdering and raping people. If we can put it in our terminology, Barabbas is a terrorist. He's a terrorist. So Pilate says, oh, I've got a plan. Pilate had to have been smiling. He's, he's stuck and then the light bulb goes on. He goes, I know it. I know it. I know how I can get out of this one. I'm going to say there's, a, there's this custom. You have a custom where I can release a prisoner in place of the other person. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick that prisoner, Barabbas. Barabbas. And what is Pilate thinking all along? Hey, who do you want? Who do you want in your town? Who do you want in your city? Who do you want running in your streets, in your back alleys? Who do you want? Do you want this guy named Jesus who everybody knows is innocent? Or do you want a traitor, a murderer, a rapist, a terrorist? Who do you want? And Pilate absolutely thinks they're going to go, ugh. Fine, you win. Give us Jesus. Kill Barabbas. He's worthy of death. And so he asks, don't you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? But they cry out, verse 40, not this man, but Barabbas. No, don't give us Jesus. Even though they know Jesus is innocent, they know he's innocent. And they'd rather have a terrorist, a terrorist running in their streets than the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the true son of the father, Barabbas, bar Abba, bar like Bartholomew, son, uh, or Barnabas, son of encouragement. Bartholomew, these names mean bar is son of, and Abba is father. Bar Abba, bar Abba, just as the name son of the father. So here you have a man who is named son of the father, standing next to the only true son of the father. And the world looks on and says... We'll take the fake. We'll take the fraud. We'll take the sinner. Every day there's a question. Are you going to choose Jesus or are you going to choose Barabbas? Every day there's a question. Are you going to choose? I want Jesus. I want everything that Jesus is. I want him to be in my life. I want him to live through me. I want to live for his priorities. I want my affections to be his affections. I want Jesus. Or you know what? Go ahead and take Jesus. I want to be king. And he's standing in the way of my autonomy, so kill him. And I'm fine with the consequences of sin. I'm fine with what's going to happen. If we get a terrorist back on the streets, I'm fine with that. I'll take that. I just don't want him to be king. See, the reality is Jesus always demands a verdict. Pilate has declared that verdict. He's innocent, but Pilate has not said, and he's king, and I want to be in his kingdom. Pilate thinks, I can find a way to release him, to make everybody happy, to kill the bad guy, and everybody wins. And the, this trap that Pilate sets springs on himself. So we see the accusation, we see the interrogation, we see the verdict. Pilate's going to take Jesus and John's going to give us the final trial in chapter 19. Between verses 38 and 39, between 
the end of the first interrogation and Barabbas, the Barabbas affair between those two. Um, Luke chapter 23 happens where Jesus is taken to Herod. If you remember, Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. And the crowd says, if he were guiltless, if he were truly innocent, we wouldn't have brought him to you. But as it is, he's been spreading his message of sedition from as far as Galilee all the way to Jerusalem, from the north to the south, from all over the land. And Pilate hears Galilee and says, oh, hang on, he lives in Galilee? Then he's under Herod's jurisdiction. He's not under mine. He doesn't have to be under mine. Try him according to Herod's jurisdiction. Let Herod preside over it, which again is ingenious on Pilate's part. Pilate says he's innocent. They go, no, he's not. Kill him. And Pilate says, okay, fine. If he's really that guilty, let Herod try him and condemn him. Because Herod works for the Jews, and the Jews can't kill anyone. So Pilate says, let Herod condemn him. And the condemnation could be severe, but it could never be execution. Pilate is constantly saying, five times explicitly, seven times with implication, this guy's innocent. This guy's innocent, and yet he's still going to die. Full control, full glory on display. Implications are so clear. Sin never delivers what it promises. Pilate's going to try and save his back on this one, and he's going to end up losing his job not even two years after this. We see religious hypocrisy. We see political pride. We see that there's no randomness with God. But I think the end of this section, when Barabbas is brought before the crowd, gives us an amazing picture into what substitutionary atonement looks like. Barabbas has been tried, interrogated, convicted, and the verdict has been passed down. He is worthy of death, and Barabbas knows it. He's murdered people. He's raped people. He's stolen. He's a terrorist, and he's sitting in a jail cell waiting for the day that he will be crucified. And early in the morning, on a Friday morning, in the month of Nisan, Barabbas is woken up by a mob. And the mob is screaming. They're angry. They're yelling. And he tries to stand up, and his hands are shackled together. His feet are shackled together. He tries to kind of stand up and look through a little peephole, but he can't see what's going on. He just hears ringing in the jail cell. Away with this man. Crucify him. Crucify him. And he's thinking, I wonder what's happening. I wonder if this, wonder if this is the day. And then he hears the sandals of a Roman guard walking down the stone pavement. And he hears the footsteps closer and closer. And he wonders, is this my day? And he hopes that the soldier will pass him by. But the soldier stops. He hears a key in... The keyhole, the lock pops open, the door swings open, and the guard says, stand up, on your feet. He unchains him from the wall, he brings him out. And Barabbas says he's chained, his hands are shaking as he realizes this is it. That mob's anger at me. This is the day. And as he walks out, he's led before Pilate, and he sees a man who's already been beaten, He's a man who's bloodied and bruised. And he thinks, what did that guy do? And he's led before Pilate. And Pilate turns to him and says, you're free to go. And his chains are unlocked. His shackles fall down. And he walks through the midst of the crowd. They had been screaming, crucify, crucify, give us Barabbas. And now he realizes they were asking for his freedom. And he's thinking through the list of, wait, I know what I did, and they want me to go, and they want this man to die instead. And as he's about to walk through the midst of the crowd, he turns to the guard and he said, what did he do? I know what I did. What did he do to deserve his death? And the Roman guard says, he didn't do anything. He's innocent. We're Barabbas. We have a sentence over us that we must be punished for our sin. We know what we've done. We know we're guilty. The verdict has been handed down. We are guilty. 
And yet Jesus, the innocent, says, I'll take your place. I'll die the death that you deserve. And you can go free. What does it require? It requires your own admission of your guilt. You are guilty before a holy God. You've offended a holy God. You've sinned. The Bible says all of us have sinned. Nobody's better than anybody else. We've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, and the punishment for our sin is death, eternal separation from God forever. But God the Father loves you so much that he says, I don't want them to die eternally. So God the Father sent Jesus the Son, God the Son, incarnate, in flesh, to live the perfect sinless life that you and I needed to live to get to God on our behalf, but we failed. Jesus lives that perfect sinless life, and then at the cross, the Father punishes Jesus as if he had lived my sinful life so that the Father can treat me as if I lived Jesus' perfect life. Perfect substitution. His robes of righteousness for my rags, filthy rags of sin and shame. So we come to the end of chapter 18, and we see our Savior on display, full glory, willingly being our substitute, all because He loves us, and He wants to be in eternity with us forever. And as we've seen in John 17, eternal life isn't just a time and a quantity down the road. It's the here and now. So if you don't know if you have eternal life in the here and now, that you know Jesus, that you love Jesus, that you follow him, that he is your substitute. If you don't know that today, today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to bow the knee to your king. Willingly, gladly, joyfully. And say, rule my life. I follow you, the one who died in my place. God, we thank you for this amazing section of scripture. We thank you for our savior who is our perfect substitute, the man of sorrows, the one acquainted with our griefs. Surely our sorrows he bore, our griefs he carried. The punishment, the chastisement that was due for us fell upon him, and by his wounds we are saved. So may we stare at our substitute together this morning in a way that would glorify him, bowing the knee to him as king, knowing he is a good king, he's a kind king, he's a gracious savior, and he's an amazing God. We pray in the name of Jesus, our savior. Amen. Let's just stand together and sing this. Just